Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 159 with my guest, Mecca Rose Deselectress. Uh, Mecca is a DJ. She lives down in Florida. Uh, and I met Mecca through a live um, online DJ show called Soka Passion Live. It was being go- uh, guest hosted by our mutual friend, Sheldon Hoyt. And we spoke a bit about race on that podcast, and I invited her on mine to talk about sort of what's going on right now. And she has a fascinating story. Um, and I'm really glad that we met there. I would consider Mecca a new friend, and I can't wait to chat with her soon. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I hope it gives you another insight into what's going on. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, without further ado, this is Mecca Rose Deselectress. Take care. Bye. Well, Mecca, I appreciate you doing this. We met um, on, you know, uh, just for the record, we're all locked in because of COVID-19 or have been for the last three months. And my MO in life is regardless of how I feel about somebody or what I know, I'd like to meet them in person. That's like always my base (laughs) introduction level if I can. Um, But we met because of COVID. uh, Sheldon Hoyt was a a guest host on a show called So Compassion Live. um, And he and I had done a podcast prior to that. And he and I had he and I wanted to speak about the issues around race, and we had spoke just after the death of George, George Floyd. And um, then he texted me out of the blue, saying, "Hey, man, I'm on this show, so compassion. Would love to hear have you come on and talk and field some questions." And I was like, "Uh oh, like I know Sheldon, but I sure like uh, what's it, what's the worst that could happen? I'm you know I, I trust Sheldon, and I get in this room Zoom room with I think four other people that I didn't." had never met before. And we had a very intense conversation. Um, it wasn't hard for me, just to be clear. It was intense, but that doesn't mean it was difficult. It's just intense. And you, I think within the first three seconds of meeting me, told me one of the most intense things about your life I think anyone could ever admit to or share. And you reminded me a lot of my friend Cliff Alexis, who I think I texted you with about. Um, Cliff was a big mentor of mine when I was 20 years old and didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground. And he told me something very intense about his upbringing as sort of the like, hey, dum-dum, before we move forward, I need you to know where I'm coming from. And I really appreciated that about Cliff. And that's immediately why I said you should come on my podcast because, you know, there was this moment of trust that I saw in you that I saw in Cliff. So um, I want us to proceed here with the with the freedom to sort of – you don't have to talk about anything you don't want to talk about. And um, there, I don't have an agenda. We don't have to talk about race. If you want to talk about your favorite recipes for an hour and a half, I'm down. Um, <laughs> but I and we can get to that stuff in a second. Your story about your brother to me was the thing that has like, if people plant seeds in other people's brains, that's the thing that stuck in my head um, about your personal experience. But to get to that, I want to know a little bit more about sort of baby Mecca and what brought you to that conversation where you and I met, like, where are you from? I want to get to know you a little bit better before we start to hash out or talk about some of the, the crazy things in life right now that, um, a lot of people are yelling about. And, and I, I just want to start with where did you come from? What's been your experience so far? And I may ask dumb questions, so please feel free to say that's a dumb question, but I'll answer it anyway. (laughs) I don't think there's any such thing as a dumb question. Um, well, I'm from Atlanta. I grew up in Atlanta and Ohio. I uh, went to Ohio for art school. Um, I, my, my family background, we are mixed. Like, both of my family's from Barbados. We're also American. Um, as far as, like, race, you know, we, there's, we're white, black, Native American, and Japanese, actually, mm-hmm. believe it or not. My, my grandfather is uh, half Japanese. 
um, Japanese and black. Um, I grew up mostly in Georgia. Um, it was very, it was a, I've always been tomboyish. It was a little difficult growing up in Georgia because it's race has like always been an issue my whole life. Mm. So, you know, I've had um, mostly like <laughs> blatant, we don't like you kind of experiences with that. Um, I had a little friend named Amy when I was in the first grade and me and her were, it was, she was a little white girl, you know, we were, we were tight. We were like this. Mm-hmm. And, um, when Amy found out that Sheena was a little black girl, Amy and Sheena couldn't be friends anymore. So that was one of my first experiences with racism and things like that. So it's, it's kind of just always been there in my life. And it's just like, okay, you know, you, when you constantly do it, you get sick of it. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry to interrupt Mecca. Can you just tell me a little bit, did she, did you guys not know each other personally? Like face to face? Did she not? I mean, I'm sorry. It feels like she did. Like she found out you were a little black girl. Like what is that? Did you guys not? When, have- Amy, when Amy's family found out oh, I was okay. a black girl, so okay. Amy, Amy didn't care. Mm-hmm. Me and Amy were best friends. We didn't care what color we were. We were best friends. But when her family found out that that Sheena was a little black girl, Amy and Sheena couldn't be friends. Well, what did what did you think? Like, uh, um, like at that moment, like take your back. Try to forget that you're Mecca now, and you're you're way more mature, and you have a life experience, and you've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. But what did like, you know, I don't know how old you were at that moment, but what did you think then? Like, what was your brain? How did your brain process that moment? I didn't know how to process it because it was it was foreign to me. That was my that was my first instance with it, and it was like because I'm black, like really, like for real. And it just it was just it was kind of like disbelief, and then it was sad because it was this was my best friend, and we couldn't be friends anymore, and they hated me, and without even knowing me, mm-hmm. they just found out that I was a black kid, and 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 they they hated me for for pretty much no reason. And it was it was more of a like a a disbelief. Hmm. It was it was it was the first experience like that. And I just I never and at that time as a kid, innocent kid, you can't wrap your mind around it. Like you hate me just because of my skin color. Like it's hard to wrap wrap your mind around. So that was the first instance. I mean, it's happened every so often growing up, but it, outside of that, I had a great childhood. I grew up with both my parents in the home. My parents are still married. They've been married for 40 something years. That is a, they, your parents are unicorns just in the world in general. Forget, bla- forget black or white or anything. Like nobody makes it to yeah. 47 years. Yeah. Like 40, 40 something. But I think it'll be like, actually, I think it'll be 40 years this year. 40 years. Wow. If I'm not mistaken, close to it. But they're still married, still going strong. They're still in Georgia. Um, what do they do for a living? Uh, my father, he's always done construction. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of buildings in downtown Atlanta, he helped build up. Um, from the time I was small, he, he he's always done construction. He's done maintenance. I think he does maintenance now. Um, my mom, she has like three degrees. I don't know what she's doing with them right now, but she has like three different degrees. She's normally a housewife, so we grew up in a very traditional home where my father went and worked and my mother was the the um, homemaker. And she worked when she had to or wanted to. Um, but we grew up in it just a very, very normal household. 
you know, um, there was nothing really out of the ordinary. And you, how many brothers and sisters did you have? Well, my parents together have five, uh, five girls. Okay. My father has many kids (laughs) from previous marriages. Um, and what but, did he do in a former life that cursed him with five girls in the last marriage? He did something. I don't know. <laughs> he did, I know he did something. <laughs> he Whatever he did, he, he Just, earned that. <laughs> I imagine by like the third child, he was like, okay, maybe the next one. And then the fourth one, he's like, okay, this is it if the fifth one isn't. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. It's like after the third one, okay, maybe the next one. After the fourth one was a girl. Okay, let's try one more time. Fifth one, he's like, okay, that's it. <laughs> but he had sons before in the previous yeah. marriages but with my mom no all girls i know he did something to deserve that he did something that <laughs> he had to <laughs> he had to but yeah my my parents they're they're great um this my my childhood was normal i was a tomboy i was very tomboyish i always wanted to do what the boys were doing because the girls were always like gossiping and doing having drama and all petty stuff and i wasn't with that like i just wanted to climb trees and i had a um a skateboard named nightmare and i used to skateboard all the time i learned to skateboard before i learned to ride a bike so that's so did is it like uh again i i have i grew up in you know in ohio and i there were some girls in my neighborhood who we called tomboys but it was because like they played soccer and they shaved the back part of their head like that was like the rebellious tomboy thing to do in the 90s was shave like if you were a girl and you shaved this just part under like an undercut then that was like you were a different you were saying something about yourself um like for Um, you what were you i mean did you have were you surrounded by sports or what, like, what do you mean by tomboy? I guess is what I'm, what I'm saying. Well, yeah. I played softball. Um, I wasn't very, I was never very girly, you know, I've, I've always liked boys, but I just always wanted to do what they were doing. You know, it just, it just seemed to have more fun. Like climbing trees is more fun than getting my nails done. <laughs> you know, riding my skateboard was more fun than playing with dolls. Now, I couldn't do the undercut thing. I was too young. My father would never allow it, but I, just everything. I just wanted to hang with the boys on the time. I'm still kind of that way. Like I'm a DJ. When I first started DJing, it was mostly boys into it. Mm-hmm. Um, motorcycles. I've always been into motorcycles. That's more of a, you know, like a boy. And when I started, that was more of a boy thing. Like I just always like the boys should always have more fun. Well, so how, I just wanted to hang with the boys. How did you, I mean, there's, there's recently, I mean, prior to, I mean, just, I'm sort of like saying things are being talked about at specific times, knowing full well that like racism and bigotry and misogyny and all these things have been talked about and should be talked about all the time, regardless of what's happening. Um, But there's a lot of talk around like how different genders sort of deal with each other. And I'm, I'm, as you're talking about this, I'm curious, like for just forget race for a second, but just as a woman, like what, what have been some of your experiences being someone who's like, well, I want to, I want to participate in what the guys are doing. Like how have how has that part of your life intersected with, you know, men and gender and all that stuff? Being somebody from the beginning, being like, girls are boring. Like, I know that's a that's a broad statement. Girls are boring. Boys are awesome. Like, what do I do about that? Yeah, and that's pretty much what it was. Like, girls are boring. Boys, boys are awesome. And I, I used to get in trouble a lot because my father thought I was being promiscuous. Um, but he didn't understand that I just wanted to hang out with the boys. The, they didn't want me. Like, they weren't interested in me. They were interested in the prissy girls. Like they weren't, they, they weren't paying it. They weren't like interested in, they were interested in the girls who were really girly and I wasn't that. So mm. it was just genuinely like, I've just always been that way. Like just the boys are having more fun than me and I want to do what they're doing. Um, and as an adult, 
it's different because that innocence is not there. Yeah. It's like, oh, she's trying to sleep with him or she's sleeping with him. Like, even as a DJ, like, I've been a DJ for about eight years professionally. Um, I actually started DJing when I, in, in 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was a techno DJ, believe it or not. Hmm. Um, I did it on vinyls. I had a neighbor and he was a techno DJ. He taught me. I didn't have a DJ name or anything. I was just doing it because it was fun. Hmm. And he taught me to DJ on vinyl. This little white boy, my neighbor. <laughs> he taught me to DJ on vinyl. And um, it was just fun, you know, because I went to school for music. So I just had a blast playing music. But, you know, then life happened. I got pregnant, married, divorced, all that. And then I decided to get into DJing professionally. So um, I've been DJing professionally for about eight years. Mm-hmm. And so it's like every male DJ I'm seen with, I'm accused of sleeping with them. Oh, yeah. Like every single one. It doesn't matter who. So that's that's how it translates now from being a kid. As a kid, it's very innocent. You know, but as an adult, when you see a woman with a lot of men, it's automatically assumed she's sleeping with these men. You, like, need, like a, you of, need a DJ shirt that just says, I'm not sleeping with them, and just two arrows pointing outwards. <laughs> I know, exactly. Like, like, yeah. these just are my friends. Before like, <laughs> you think about it, before you even say the thing, I just want to clarify something for you. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. So that's always the, you know, I, and it used to bother me at first. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned that very quickly that that just comes with the territory when you're a woman in the music industry. People want to know who you're sleeping with more than whether you can, you have talent. They want to know who you're sleeping with. Yeah. Like that's like the, their biggest concern for some reason. Well, and it's weird. You and I spoke, I think on, on the Soka Passion Live I mentioned, and I, I feel like I said it up front pretty clearly because I meant it in that like there's certain things I think just as a human being, and I can speak as a man that like you have to push down and sort of actively actively react against the way your brain acts sometimes. Like I have a lizard brain that tells me to be afraid of people I don't know. So that means I have thoughts in my head that are rooted in some sort of racism, whether it be because I watched, like like I mentioned to you, cops for five years growing up, not having any idea what it, what, what it was doing to my brain, you know. Um, I have those thoughts. But, but you know, you, you have to be actively engaged in sort of questioning your own thoughts, right? And as a man, the thing that is hard to explain to people is that there's a part of my DNA that no matter how hard I try, when I see my wife, regardless of whether or not she's in her PJs or she's dressed in her clergy garb, I see her and I'm like, oh, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> it feels so childish and stupid, but I'm one of the good ones. And I feel like I still have to be like, no, 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 not going to talk about, not going to, we're not going to engage with that, Josh. You know, you have to be a mature adult. And I, yeah. it's like the hardest thing to explain. And so just, I think some guys, the ones we hear about just are not good at pushing down their own sort of lizard brains. And, you know, I just wish I could talk to guys more often and be like, listen, man, I'm with you. I get it. It's hard. But like mm-hmm. lifting weights, you got to practice. Like you got to be like, right. I bench pressed 20 pounds today. And then tomorrow you'll bench press 22. And then 10 years from now, you'll be able to have a conversation with a woman and not feel like your brain is swamped with purely sexual thoughts, you know, like, it's yeah. something that I, I empathize with women in the field right now because it's like, oh, my God, I can't imagine being a woman trying to work with men. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, we're hot messes, you know? <laughs> yeah, it gets difficult because, you know, with, with a lot of guys, they think, you know, they try to use the music industry or, you know, that we know each other in this field to, to try to get with me. 
Uh-huh. And I'm just not with it. And, you know, they, they, they do try. But again, you know, it just it just translates to that, you know, when your child is innocent. Yeah. When you're an adult, it's, there's like a little, what is she doing kind of thing. Well, so guys, guys try. They think that I'm, you know, I want them or they think that they have may have a chance or something and they try. Or people see me and they like, they automatically assume, oh, she's doing it. So there's that. I mean, that's. Again, it comes with the territory, mm-hmm. I guess. Well, you're, I think we, just, you know, in hindsight, maybe cut your dad a little slack. Like he wasn't wrong about. He was just like he thought you were promiscuous, but what it turns out was everybody you were working with was probably promiscuous, and he was just like, "No, don't go in there." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He thought, yeah, he thought it was me, and I, I didn't understand it as a kid. Mm-hmm. As an adult and as a mother, I understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I, I get it now, but you know, when you're a kid, you're just like, oh, you just being, you just want to, uh, yeah. and, and so as an adult now, I, I completely understand. Well, let me, let me ask you, you, you mentioned that you went to music school and I think when we were texting the other day, you went to music school in Cincinnati, um, you know, in, in Ohio, I think we also texted is like an oddly diverse state where like, if you know, I grew up in Northeastern part of Ohio, which is big, uh, sort of borders Appalachia, but mostly industrial, like Cleveland, Cincinnati or uh, Cleveland, Sandusky, the North, like on the great lakes area. Cincinnati is like a different country. Like it's not even the same as like Cleveland. And, and so, and again, like I say that just like, I did, I heard my brother lived there for two years or something. Um, but for you, like what, uh, you went to school there. What was your experience like going to school? What were you studying in Cincinnati? Um, I went to school for creative performing arts. I was studying, my major was vocal music. I used to sing. My minor was dance. And then I had a third, my, a second minor, which was, uh, art. I used to be able to draw. Hmm. Um, so I went there for a couple years. Um, it was very much. You remember the movie Fame? Mm-hmm. Um, that art school in New York. It was pretty much like based around that. That was pretty much the the the, um, mm. the vibe for the most part. You know, it was like you know a little dialed. I mean, it's dialed down, of course. But mm-hmm. you walk through the halls and you see people drawing and dancing and singing. You see people doing ballet and. Right. You know, we we did performances, you know, for each other and on, on the stage, and it was such a great experience for me. I loved every minute of it. That was when I got into African dance. I was about sixteen. What was the racial makeup of the school? It was mostly white. Okay, all right. Yeah, mostly white. You rarely see black kids at that school. Okay. At that time, anyway. But um, it was it was just great. I loved it. I didn't get to graduate from it because um, I got hit by a car and I wasn't able to finish, um, graduate from there. I graduated from a different school because you, you to go to that school, you have to be able to do your major and your minor. And oh. um, I couldn't. Because so I missed a yeah, I missed a lot of school, so I got put into a regular school to graduate from. What, what, uh, so when you were hit by a car, like you were, I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm assuming you were hurt, hurt pretty badly, right? Yeah, yeah. I was crossing my mom. I got home from school and my mom's like, go across the street and get to the store, get some peas and carrots. And I went across the street to get some peas and carrots. I was tired, trying to hurry up. And the stoplight, the light was um, green, but one of the lanes was standing still and the other lane was, so four lanes, two were clear. These two, one was standing still, the other was clear. Mm-hmm. So I just went for it. And the lady, she came from behind another, another car to speed up and try to catch the light. She didn't see me. I didn't see her. She hit me. I don't remember. I just know what they told me. They said, uh, she hit me on my right side. Um, my head went through the windshield and shattered her whole front glass. And then I rolled off and hit the ground. 
And I just remember waking up in the ambulance with a hickey on the back of my head about that big, about the size of a baseball. Pain was a lot. I passed out. Woke up again in the hospital. There was a chaplain standing over me because everybody thought I died. Um, and I, I went home, couldn't walk. Turned out I, I messed up my leg. And I had to have surgery. I had to put four screws in my knee to hold it together. Still, I needed to hold my, my knee together. And um, that that changed my whole life because I was going to the art school to get a scholarship for dance so I can travel the world as a dancer. Mm-hmm. You know, I did ballet, tap, jazz, modern, all set classical dances. I started doing African dance in that school. And, and that changed the course of my life. Because mm-hmm. if I hadn't got hit by the car, I would probably be in Paris somewhere right now, like <laughs> performing, yeah. you know, but that, that was that, whole experience changed my entire life. And I, I like to be optimistic and believe everything happens for a reason. So um, I like to think that maybe it wasn't my destiny to be this big famous dancer. Maybe well, I'm where I'm going to be. Well, um, speaking of like where, where you should be, like what is it you do now for a living? And then I want to sort of get into the stuff that we spoke a little bit about on the Soka Passion Live. But like what um, what do you do now for a living? And, and sort of where are your where are your hobbies and interests at right now? Well, right now I have two jobs. Um, during the day, I work at a resort on the beach, on Hollywood Beach. Okay. Um, doing whatever they ask me to, pretty much front desk, receiving them, anything they ask me to. So I do that. And then at night, I'm a radio personality on um, WZOP, WCPP 92.7 FM, 96.1 FM. That's in the evenings. Um, I DJ on the weekend. Um, I have a hair and skincare line working. I'm trying to get it launched because I've been working on it since like 2012 because I, I learned how to make um, soaps and stuff like that when I was in about 2002 mm-hmm. and I just always made it for myself so around 2012 I decided that I was going to try to sell it and I've you know been doing okay but it's not like completely off the ground so I've been working on that um, and that's pretty much it like I like to play I play acoustic guitar mm-hmm. at an intermediate level absolutely love it it's absolutely therapeutic um, I play the African drums too um and I like to do anything, just anything fun and anything new. Well, um, well, the, and, and your DJ set, I think, your, or your DJing stuff. I mean, you mentioned that a few times. And your DJing thing, I, I mean, maybe I'm misreading here, is sort of what what bumps you into Sheldon and that crew. Am I am I misreading that? No, you're right. You're right because um, we, me and Sheldon are both on Soka Passion Live, which is the internet radio station. Um, I've I think Sheldon been on it longer than me. I've been on it about two years, mm-hmm. and that's how me and Sheldon uh, crossed paths. Okay, and you know, and, and as I mentioned, I had crossed paths with Sheldon in, in 2015 through the steel band world. Um, and our conversation—I'm I'm not going to do the synopsis of it here, but if folks want to want to check it out, it's it's all posted on Sheldon's thing on live, and then I posted it on my channels as well. Um, the conversation that where we, you and I met for the first time was specifically focused on race and was really recent after the murder of George Floyd. And, um, you know, I, I have, I, again, like, I don't even know where to begin the conversation about this stuff. And, and, um, I'm grateful that you're even willing to even entertain this with me, but, um, I wanted to sort of talk a little bit specifically about your experience with, your interactions with the police. I, you know, I have uh, former family members who were in the, in law enforcement. I have many friends in the pan world. Uh, There's a friend, one of my good friends in Trinidad is a cop in Trinidad. Like, um, but the truth is 
there are just some things that I'll never understand. And it's, there's, there's, there's many opinions as to why, like it's my fault. I don't understand. There's all these things, but there are also things that I just like, I just never know what it's like to be pulled over and be terrified. The reason is, is because I've never been pulled over and made to feel terrified. Like that's just a true data point. Like it's not my fault. I've never been made to feel fear. It's just true. Like it's just true. And, um, I don't understand what that feels. I have anxiety when I get pulled over. Don't get me wrong. But my anxiety is like, I don't want to have a point on my license. I don't want to have to go to court because it might interfere with my work. Like there's all the things that cause my anxiety, right? But those are not the same anxieties that you have when you get pulled over. And I'm curious, before we get into stuff with your brother, like, I don't know how to talk about those differences in experiences between two people. But um, I'm just curious if you're willing to talk about that with me. I've told you my tiny experience in getting pulled over, which is minuscule. Um, but for you, what what has been your experience? And again, I don't need you to speak. I'm not asking you to speak for anyone but yourself. Um, yeah. Because you can't <laughs> speak for anybody else right. other than yourself. <laughs> what has been your experience interfacing with – your personal experience interfacing with the, pol- with the police? And then I want to sort of get into talking about your brother from, from that point. Um. When I get pulled over, my first thought is to turn on my camera. So I'm like, okay, they might, it, it's, it's a little legit, like literally you feel like, what if they kill me? You, you literally feel like you're going to lose your life. Like what if, what if I lose my life right now? And it's, it's scary. Like it's, I don't even like scary is like a, not even strong enough word for it. I pull up, I put my hands on steering wheel, and I'm like, okay, don't make any sudden moves. Don't do it. Don't breathe too hard. Like, just be still. And, you know, they ask my license. Like, And this is not because, like, my license, registration, insurance is all good. It's fine, but I still have this fear, like, because I got pulled over. Um, I got pulled over a couple months ago. I was driving, and my tire got low, and I jumped out the car and looked at the tire, and I jumped back in. And before I could put my seatbelt on, I pulled off. And I'm trying to put my seatbelt on and the puck cop sees me because I'm struggling with the seatbelt. He sees me. So I look guilty. And he pulls me over and I'm like, oh, God. Please don't kill me today. It, it's, it's like I literally like we, not we, me. I literally try to drive. I see a cop on it in the lane next to me. I try to stay behind that cop because I don't know if he's going to pull me over for what, for what reason. Mm-hmm. I got put over for a tail light before, you know. I got pulled over for speeding before and I was dead wrong, you know, but I got pulled over for a tail light, didn't know my tail light was out. And every time you just, you're just like, am I going to die today? Please don't be the day I die. Cause you just automatically assume, like for instance, um, I have a niece and when she was, she was like four or five years old. I think I might've been like 16 years old. An ambulance flew past the apartment. She hears the sirens and she goes, Oh shit, the police and hides under the bed. She's old, she was only like five years old. This is a genuine fear. Like children even see this. Like children see the police. And this, I'm not saying it's the police, you know, I'm not trying to like blame the police for everything. But um, this is just the experience we have. Like it's that fear is there. Like she literally at five years old. Oh shit. And she cuts, I didn't even know, oh shit, the police hide ducks under the bed. And we're like, Kayla, like, <laughs> you know. It's a genuine fear that's there. 
Because, you know, it's like, you know, we, you know that if they kill you, they're not going to, they're not going to see any consequences. Like, they're going to get away with it. They can just, they, like, they know that they can just kill you. And, and Like, they know it. Well, there's, there's a thing. So, I, I think I learned the word. I, I, don't, I can't remember the word actually now that I'm bringing it up. But it's something about um, uh, some, some sort of immunity that cops are given by the courts because of their job, you know, yeah. um, that kind of no matter what happens, there is an extra level of immunity that none of us have. You know, if I went out and strangled somebody in the streets, I don't have the same immunity that Derek Chauvin had in, in Minnesota, like just as a base default, regardless of whether anybody videotaped it or anything, I just have less protection than, than a cop does. Right. And right. that seems to me like, again, I'm not a cop. I don't know what the, I don't know what it's like to be a cop. Just like, I don't know what it's like to be black. I have no idea what it's like to run towards danger when it happens. Like that's not my, my instinct is to run the other way, Mecca. I don't know about you, but when danger happens, you're going to see my ass and my, my elbows and my legs kicking the other way. Um, But, but like that extra bit of accountability absolves officers and anybody, whether you're giving someone a ticket for, you know, an emissions check thing. Like I, I mentioned, I think on that podcast, it's like that cop is like, sorry, the ticket's already been being written. And he just walked away. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like if you're willing to absolve yourself of this tiny bit of accountability, what are you going to do when somebody's selling yeah. loose cigarettes on Staten Island? Mm-hmm. Like it's pretty yeah, clear it's, actually what you're going to do, you know? Well, yeah. And that's the thing. Cause we, we, you know, black people, even as children, we feel like we're targeted because we pretty much are targeted. And there's this like stigma that that we're so violent and we're so aggressive and we're so, you know, these we have these these things on us, these stereotypes that are not necessarily true. Not saying that there are there are violent black people, there are aggressive black people, but that's that's the exception and not the rule. Yeah, well, you know, and Dylan so- Dylan Roof is also an exception to the white rule. They also took him to McDonald's on the way to the police station. Like, 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 like white people can do horrible things too. It's just that this guy prayed with people and shot them at point blank range and they got him lunch on the way to the police station. Right. Now I, maybe that's the way we should treat every criminal, but if we're not treating everybody the same, we need to talk about it. Like if, if everybody's not getting a trip to McDonald's after they're arrested, then we need to talk about that. That is not fair. It's not, it's not and it's kind of like he was rewarded for killing those people. Like that's what it looks like to me and a lot of us. It was like, okay, good job. Here's some Burger King now. You know, and we and we get killed for less than that. Mm-hmm. We get killed for loose cigarettes. We get killed for loitering. Like it's one of those things. Like we just we we understand from a young age that we're targeted. You know, my my nephews and stuff have to be talked to about how to survive the police. Like if you get pulled over, don't do this, don't do that. You can't be too black. You can't be too this. You can't, you gotta be like super, super careful. Like we have to walk on eggshells as we walk through the world. You know, it, it's one of those things. It's like, we can't just relax and be normal. We can't just be at ease. We always have to be, have a guard up. With black women, we, we can't be too aggressive. We can't be too passionate. We can't be too this, we can't be too loud. We gotta be, you know, we can't be too black. You know, it's like, it's just, Things that that we can't we can't just be ourselves without it being looked at as being bad, you know. When somebody uh, somebody said to me the other day was like, "I thought you were going to jump on Josh," and I was like, "I wasn't going to do that." I was, uh, I guess. Are you talking about had, our, our conversation the other day? Yeah, oh. yeah. 
um, when we were on So Compassion on, on uh, Sheldon's show, Afro Spins, I thought you were going to jump on it. I was like, I had no intention of jumping on him, but he, if he wants to help, I'm going to let him know how he can help. You know, I'm well, just I'm, being honest. I'm not going to lie to you. That was an uncomfortable moment for me. But, 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 but I want to say that in the context of like the other uncomfortable moment I had today was like having to delay the mowing of my lawn. Like, like I, it, my lizard brain does rise up. Like when you, when you, I think you said something to the effect of like, get your people. And I had this, I had this, like my level of anxiety was just like starting to rise because I was like, I don't know how to tell Mecca that my people aren't maniacs. Like I know who we're talking about here. Like I don't, but this is not the time or place to say that to Mecca. Like I need to get to know Mecca. And, and, but, but again, it's like, yeah, I didn't think you were going to jump on me. Also, I don't enter into situations. I think I, my bullshit meter is pretty high. Like if Sheldon tells me I can be in the room, I have to trust that Sheldon wouldn't put me in the room. Who's just going to be a maniac to me. Like, yeah. So I didn't even enter the equation with that as my thought, but I'm not going to lie to you and say that like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Like, am I in trouble right now? Did I say something <laughs> wrong? Uh, but it became clear, Mecca. I think the more you spoke, the more it was clear to me as like, Oh, oh okay. I understand why she's saying the things she's saying. I mean, I can I can imagine saying the same things if my brother was shot by the cops in front of me. I can totally imagine that. My dad died of ALS, you know, in a wheelchair. Like nobody killed him. Like it wasn't oppression that killed him or systemic right. bias or anything. But I understand losing a family member to something you have yeah. zero control over. That blows. Right. And the anger I have towards ALS, you it must be the same that you have towards the police. Like like that's got to be it's got to come from the same place, right? Yeah. And you know, anyway, that's that's just where I was coming from that meeting. So I, I appreciate that your friend thought that, but that's that's not at all what I was. Thinking. Yeah, and I was like, I, I'm just I'm very passionate about it because it's something that I've I walk through life with this whole race and racism thing. It's either it's outright outright blatant or it's microaggressions. And my family didn't have a voice when my brother was killed. So you know, it's it's if and I see people that are genuine, genuinely want to know or genuinely want to help, then I'm. You know, I want to speak up and say something like, hey, if you want to help, then this is what we need. Because mm-hmm. I I, my, my, I don't hate the police. I do feel the fear. I do feel uneasy around the police. I don't hate them because I know there are good ones, but there needs to be a complete reform. Yeah. You know, because um, they're just allowed to get away with killing us. And I have I have police officers in my family. Mm. So it's not that I, I just absolutely hate the police. I don't I avoid the police. I don't want to deal with the police. But at the same time, I, 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 you know, I understand that there are good cops and the system is not, the, and it's not so much individuals, it's the whole system. Yeah. Because in that system, you have people, racist cops that hate black people and they just want to kill them. But then you also have good ones. But that whole system is messed up. It's, and then that's what it comes down to. And as much as I don't want to deal with the police and I try to avoid the police, I still have to take a step back and understand like, okay, there's a system in place that allows them to be able to do these things and that needs to be changed. So, well, the, the thing I also don't want to discount here is, and the thing I like, nobody talks about is like, you know, I let's, let's prior to all uh, this particular, uh, in the intensity of this particular convert type of conversation around George Floyd and the way the nation is having to reckon with a lot of things right now. Um, you know, you talk about genetics, right? Like my family is riddled with alcoholism and cancer. And nervous <laughs> disorders, like 
I'm going down. I'm going to be shaking in a leaf in some hospital bed, drinking alcohol, probably Mecca. That's the way. That's the way my every man in my family has died for the last 300 years. Um, oh God, we're Irish. We we're Welsh. Like we have. I've got. A, I've got all the genetic baggage that to, to sort of wither away and die of alcoholism. But that stuff is the same. Like uh, genetic fear and trauma is passed down too. And mm-hmm. when we talk about things like, oh, why, why are black people afraid of the police? It's like. Okay, well, let's stop for a second. If alcoholism can be passed down genetically, so can an imprinted fear of an authoritative body. And when yeah. hundreds of years ago, starting starting well before the United States was a country, slavery started this sort of fingerprint of fear that a population had to deal with. Their generation, yeah. the sub- subsequent generations, now leading to you, Mecca, like it's in your genetics, it's in your DNA. And, yeah. and I don't want, like, I'm surprised that people are surprised. Like, it's like, what do you mean? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like you, yeah. you struggle with alcoholism because four grandparents away, they struggle with alcoholism. So why are you looking at Mecca as any different than, than right. you? This issue is the same. It is. And it's definitely handed down. Um, it's definitely genetic as well. It's handed down. It's, it's, it's learned too. Cause as you, like I said, my, my first experience with racism, I was very, very young and I didn't, know about it, understand about it till I experience that. You know, it's so it's not just genetics, it's also, you know, the, the living experience mm-hmm. that you have as you move throughout life. Um that unfortunately um oh you muted yourself by accident. Oh no I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you. No problem. You muted yourself by accident there. Yeah, no, but somebody called me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. You're yeah, good. No, they, uh, and, and muted. I had to delete them. Um, oh, sorry about that. No problem. But yeah, it's, it it just goes back to, you know, you. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's genetics. And it's also life experiences. Um, we just, you know, they, like the children, they have a natural fear of the police, the little, little black kids. And my daughter asked me one day, she's 14 now, when she was like six or seven, she was like, mommy, why don't white people like black people? I don't understand. And I was like, me either. I didn't have a real answer for her. You know, but these are things, these are things that we really actually, actually happen. And it, it gets frustrating. Like I don't talk about it a lot because people don't believe me. Like, it's like when you try to dis- to explain to white people, like this is what we go through as black people. It's like, Oh, okay. Stop your belly. aching, stop crying. Stop whining. Uh, it's just brushed off. as like, we're just like tripping or something. But which, this is what we really experience. And, and and that's why I was like so willing to do this with you because I'm, I'm glad that you actually really care enough to listen to understand. And I think that's dope. Like that's good that you want to do that. So, you know, well, I, I, I like this. I have no reason not to believe you. And I, I do want to also like, if your daughter ever asks that question again, um, I think you could reframe it and say, well, I know one white person that likes you <laughs> or is willing to like, and I know, I, I know it sounds disingenuous here, or it may sound like a broad statement, but I think the vast majority of, you know, I think I said this in a text and I said it on the podcast too, and I'll say it again. Like, I think the vast majority of people, or if we want to use the term white people, just don't understand. And that ignorance or just not understanding a story. And then when you see the, like, when people talk about it, it's terrifying. Like the idea that, like, if you've never had a brother murdered by the cops in front of you. There's no way in the same way, like I was saying, I don't know what the anxiety is of being pulled over. There's no way you can possibly even be like, what does that feeling feel like? Because it's not the same thing. And I think there's just a lot of um, 
insecurity and ignorance. And again, just to sort of put it back on you, I'm very grateful that you're willing to even share this stuff with me because you have no reason to. I, I am not deserving of your trust. I haven't, you know, I've known you for about six and a half minutes now or 42 minutes and 10 seconds, actually, according to my, my podcast recording here. But I do feel like this generosity of like, if you give me five inches into your world, I'll give you six inches into mine. Like, and maybe that's my little, like Josh Tomeka, that's our reparations that we're going to talk about. Like, I'll give you six <laughs> inches if you give me five and then I'll give you yeah. like, I, again, that's a horrible word. I, again, I'm not, I'm not expressing this properly, but I do feel like this generosity we're giving each other mm-hmm. is a, it's a long-term view. I don't, we're not maybe going to see results in society by like July, but I do feel mm-hmm. like you and I now see each other way differently than we did coming into the podcast. So I'm grateful for that. And to pivot a little yeah. bit now, like, can you tell, if you don't mind me asking, could you share in as graphic a detail as you feel is appropriate, the very specific story now to sort of bring it back around to where you and I started, quite frankly, um, this very specific moment of trauma for you and your family as it pertains to the cops. Um, you lost your brother. Uh, yeah. in a shooting. And I'm, and if you're, if you'd be up for it, I'd be willing for you to share your story again in as graphic a detail. It's your story. You tell it as you see fit. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, fortunately I wasn't there when it happened. My family was, my father was there. Um, my brother, he was 18. I was nine. He was having, he was struggling. Um, he was having suicidal thoughts. His mother, we have the same dad. His mother called my dad and the police to kind of stop him. He wanted to cut his wrist. So she called him over there. Um, this is my understanding because, again, I wasn't there. How old were you at the time, if you don't mind me asking? I was nine. nine. I was nine. Um, the police were there. My father was there. His mother was there. Um, the police, was a police officer in front of him and went behind him. He had a little paring knife, you know, the little, the little blade, because mm-hmm. he was going to cut his wrist. And he turned to say something to my dad. It wasn't like a sudden move. It was just like a turn. And that's when they shot him up in the front and back, 16 shots in the front and back. They shot him to kill him. In the article that they put out in the newspaper, they said he went like that to stab one of the officers, which wouldn't make sense when you got a little paring knife. And it didn't happen. They stayed, they, the article said that he was shot twice. He was actually shot 16. There were 16 holes in his body in the autopsy. And when he, um, when he was shot, so you said he was shot in the front and the back. Did one, when he was shot again, please, I'm asking a question. I feel totally unauthorized to ask, but like, did he start like, how did they end up shooting him in the back? That's what I'm, I'm missing here. Like, and when, when they were trying to talk him down, one officer was in front of him and the other one was behind him. Okay. So when he turned to look at my dad, they just shot him. I don't know why they felt they need to shoot him in the back. I don't know why they felt they need to shoot him 16 times, but they definitely shot to kill. They didn't shoot to stop. Mm-hmm. If, he, if devil's advocate here, if he were to try to stab one of them with the, the little carry, you can't even hold a knife like that. So... If he were to try to do that, why not shoot him to stop him? Why 16 times? You know, um, it was overkill and it was in, in, intention was to kill him instead of saving him. Mm-hmm. 
they were there to save him. They were supposed to save him. And that didn't happen. They killed him instead. So why they shot him in the back? I don't know. I mean, why they felt the need to try to shoot him so much? I don't know. But what? they definitely wanted to kill him. That's what they definitely they definitely were out set out to do. What? They were supposed to save his life. What happened? Well, uh, what was the next steps in terms of like? I'm sorry for the banal questions here, but like, so your brother shot. Your, I'm sure you got a your fan. Like, what what was the first time? How did you hear about it? I came home. No, did I come home? I can remember coming out. I don't remember if I was home or not. I remember coming out of my room and seeing my dad sitting on the floor, leaned up against the couch, crying. And I never saw my dad cry before. That was the first and last time I ever seen my dad cry. So that was when I found out that it happened. Um, he didn't tell me. One of my aunts had to tell me that it happened. He just cried the whole, I mean, imagine watching your child get killed in front of you. I couldn't imagine how that felt for my dad. A child, just to be clear, a child who you were already fearful was going to take his own life. Right. This was not somebody who had used a $20 counterfeit bill or any of right. the stuff people like to talk about with George Floyd or Michael Brown or like any of the bullshit around this. Like your bro- your dad was already terrified your brother was going to kill himself. Right. And so then the idea that it actually, the end result, the death happened, but not in the way your dad ever could have imagined or your brother quite frankly. I mean, not to say they never thought about that, but like when I talk about trauma, that's what I mean. Like that shit. If the trauma of my dad dying of ALS ripples through my life and causes me the crippling anxiety I've had, then we absolutely have to understand that this particular aggressive type of trauma, proactive trauma um, yeah. Like ALS is a passive trauma. Like my dad, there's nothing you can do about it. It just happens or it right. doesn't. This is right. an, this is somebody actively engaged in this, whether their intention was to set out to kill your brother in the, in the beginning or not. That's what happened. And mm-hmm. like for you though, like how did you, once you heard like what, again, I'm sorry to ask the question, but how do you, what's the first thing you pick up in your life and be like, well, I can grab onto this as a nine-year-old kid and take the next three steps and then grab onto the next thing as a mooring thing in my life to keep me grounded. How did you deal with that? I don't know. You just, you know, you cry it out and you cry and you cry and you cry until you can't cry anymore. I was, I wasn't allowed at the funeral. Why? So I never meant to say goodbye. I said I was too young. Um, cause I was nine at the time since that were so that was too young. So we weren't allowed the funeral. So I never got to say goodbye. And I didn't get to, I didn't get to experience my brother. You know, he, we, we had a, we were, had a nine year age difference and I don't feel that I really got, and I, I was robbed of the chance to experience him, to grow up with him, you know, to do things with him, you know, like brother and sister thing. I didn't, I didn't, I was robbed of that. So as a nine year old, I mean, I don't know how how I dealt with it. You just deal with it. You just do it. There's like no, there's no like blueprint or layout for you. Just, just do it. And it's it's a hard lesson to learn at nine years old about death. 
and and about the system and why you know these cops afterwards there was no justice the cops two of the cops that killed him got death duty uh pay suspension and then they were back on the on the streets so there was no repercussions and that's something we did you you learn this that a young no child should have to go through those things no child no child should have to learn through about death that way mm-hmm. by losing their sibling. No child should have to learn, hey, this world is unfair. This is what you're gonna this is like this is life. This world is unfair at that age. You know, that's too young of a lesson to, for to, to well, learn a lesson like it's I, I mean I I'm not arguing with you here, but it's it's too I mean, I don't think it's fair to say to anybody that the world is fair. Unfortunately, uh, but to agree with you, like to tell a young child, to show a young child that the world is unfair in that specific way. Yeah. I'm sorry. There's just way better ways to tell people that the world is unfair, to, to teach a student, to teach a student, to teach a child, to teach an adult. It's like, of course the world's not fair. The world, that's yeah. not its job. It's just the way it is. And we as human beings have to strive. But to show a nine-year-old, like, hey, I'm going to teach you that the world's not fair, and I'm going to take your brother as the way to teach you. Like, yeah. that that's not fair. <laughs> like, you talk about, like, that's, that is proof that the world is not fair, is that you as a nine-year-old, yeah. me as a nine-year-old Mecca, I was playing Little League Baseball, running around like a silly goose, making, you know, playing hide-and-seek with my friends in a cornfield. Like, I never had to deal with that. I mean, it's not my town's fault. I mean, I don't blame. I mean, it's just the way it was. But like the idea that you, I just think it's true that you had to learn about the world being unfair in a way that I never had to. And I, and I, yeah. I wish my friends and family could, could sort of think of things slightly nuanced in that way to try to understand your side of the equation a step better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't have a voice at that time and you talk about these things and it's just like, oh, it's brushed off. And it's like, no, this is real. This happened. So, I mean, what, what can I ask you? At, at what point did you realize that like racially that there was a, like um, a division, I'll say, for, for lack of a better word, that there was an unfairness um, racially? At what point did you realize that? Like what age, what point in life, what made you, what did it for you? Um, well, I would say the first time where I felt any tint, like, I think, you know, you go through, I'll say for me, I went through life and I grew up in a very small town. I I like to think of class and race as something that is intertwined in a very specific way that people don't talk about much, much. Like I think when people like, I grew up in a town where the type of white person was middle to very lower middle class to poor. So like that class of white people, the way they were treated, like, it's just, a, it's a messier thing than saying white or black. Right. Um, so uh, I was aware of things. Like I saw there was literally train tracks on the other side of which lived the eight black families in my town. Literally like there were train tracks. Like it's, that's not a new thing, right? That happens in all sorts of towns. Um, right. There was, but, but that's it. It was a very small black community in my town. Um, very high Italian uh, we had a lot of Italian mafia in the early 1900s. Wow. <laughs> a lot of like there's a brothel in my town that eventually like was a pizza shop I ate at. But my mom was like, yeah, that was run by the Italian mob pre-World War One. Oh, you know, <laughs> like like totally nuts. Um, for me, though, it was like I saw those things. I didn't understand them. I didn't see the eight black kids in my school as inequality. It was just like, well, there's one Jew. There's, you know, there's eight black kids. There's 
you know, and then there's the rest of us. Like it, it was never presented to me as a like proof of a system, right? Where I first experienced it was in Trinidad. Actually, um, I went as a as an undergrad at the University of Akron. I saved up my money playing pan gigs uh, at random, you know, luau's and bat mitzvahs and whoever else would have a party at the University of Akron. There was dumb dumb nineteen year old Josh like playing calypsos and stuff at their backyard <laughs> pool parties. Um, and at the time, not aware that I, you know, I was making my living off of an instrument and a culture that was way more complicated than I just could ever imagine at the time. And then I went to Trinidad and, uh, Bugsy Sharp, who's the guy that, I, mean, I, I don't know if you're super familiar with the pan world, but, um, Bugsy arranges for a band called phase two pan groove and phase in phase two in Woodbrook, Trinidad is, um, one of the oldest and biggest bands, right? And so I went down to play with them, and we were there for three and a half weeks. Bugsy ordered a set of doubles, two sets of double seconds for the band, uh, which is an instrument, a pan instrument. And when they showed up, they were the wrong. They, he wanted deep skirt seconds. He sent the ones that were made were short skirt. And I was like, oh, Bugsy, I'd love to purchase. I'd love the, I don't own my own instruments, and I would love – I have to borrow stuff when I play gigs. And so he sold me a set of double seconds from Phase 2, and I remember putting them in cases – and walking out of the pan yard and seeing every face in that yard look at me, not in in it, it, it again. I feel like my bullshit meter has been pretty finely tuned from the beginning. Not in a way, not in hatred or anger, but just in a like, you're doing something none of us can do, and I'm not going to judge you for it. But I just need you to know that. And yeah. I remember walking out of that yard mecca with those two double seconds in their brand new case, all polished up because my little my little nineteen year old white man was like, "Oh, I gotta polish these up and make them beautiful." You know, I took them home. I did all the thing. I played tons of gigs on them. I, you know, I feel like I've I've paid it forward in a way I feel good about. But to me, that was a moment of like, oh, oh, I actually have money enough money to purchase these where. And the instrument in the country from which these instruments were born, the people I've been hanging with for three weeks cannot. Now, as a as a twenty year old, I didn't know how to make that square or make that hole again, but I just was like, okay, that's a data point I need to recognize. I don't know how to deal with it now. I'm not mature enough. I don't I don't have expungible funds that I can just pour money into things and like I don't know how to deal with this. Um. But for me, Mecca, that was the first time where I realized there was definitely some sort of inequality. Um, I didn't recognize it as systemic at the time. I just knew like, oh, this is different. And over the course of my life, I feel like I've tried to – and the next time was being in a pan yard in Brooklyn and seeing the cops come running in because they got a noise complaint by – well, I hate this word, but by a Karen, somebody who was like uh, some (laughs) white woman who who had just moved there and hated the noise. Like, I, I genuinely don't think she hated black people. I don't think she wakes up every day and is like, screw black people. I think she just hates noise, and that's her last straw. So, But the unintended consequence of it is this sort of systemic oppression that she's putting on a whole group of people to be like, this is too loud. Really? Yeah. That's the you problem? Know. And then the cops show up and walk right by me, Mecca. Yeah. They don't go to they don't go to me. I have more weed in my bag, Mecca, probably than anybody in that yard. <laughs> but they walk by me. And that was like the other moment of like, oh, yep, in the same way. Like if I'm going to take a steel pan from Trinidad in 2000, I need to take my bag and get in line like everybody else here and have the cops search it. And the minute I do that, 
the cops leave. Like, it's like, it's this weird thing. Like they see me in line. They're like, Oh, this must be okay. And I'm like, God damn it. God damn it. You're being lazy. Stop it with that shit. Like what's wrong. (laughs) This is a 12 year old kid playing lead pan for God's sakes in Brooklyn. Like even if his bag is filled with weed, let's cut him some slack, you know, like God bless. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that lady that, that called the police, you know, you, you feel like maybe she just didn't like noise, but a lot of the time, it's that she don't like she doesn't like the noise coming from these black people, and that's yeah. we see. You see how you care, how you notice, and you gave a damn. And so many people who notice and don't give a damn, they just want to enjoy it because they because they they understand that there's a privilege, but they don't care. Hmm. And that's the problem I've always had is that you know that you have this privilege. It's obvious, like the world sees it, but you don't care to do anything. You know, it's like you just there. Then there are those that not you, not you personally, but you know, there are people, those people like out there that's like that. Then there are those who know that they have privilege, don't care, and they continue to kick us while we're down. And there's, I see more of that than people like you who genuinely want to make a difference, mm. the ones who care, who care to know, who care to understand. A lot of my experiences are people who just, they don't care. They, they see what's going on with black people, or people of color. They don't want it for themselves, but they're okay with it for us, mm. you know? And they just want, they just want us to just shut up and just, and live with it. And they don't care to make a difference. They don't care to make a change, you know? And well, let me, let people me. like you who really do care to make a difference, who care to understand. I, I don't see that a lot. Well, let me, let me, um, bring it just to sort of uh, put a button on this conversation. Like I, the way I entered the conversation with Sheldon is, was one of like, I got to trust the man. So whatever happens in that room is going to happen in that room. And what I want you, whether or not you feel this way or not, what I want you to feel is that like, I wouldn't have brought you in the room with me. And now by default, all of my white friends who are maybe going to watch this and who don't know you. And some of some of them are just tangential friendships of mine. Like I don't, they're Facebook friends. They're not friends, friends, they're Facebook friends. Yeah. I wouldn't bring you in the room if I didn't think my friends would, wouldn't trust you. And I think right now what I want, I want you to trust me in the sense that like, there's assholes out there, Mecca. Absolutely. And and unfortunately, Facebook and social media is going to – and the news is going to amplify the assholes because that's sexier, yeah. it's easier, and it's more effective. But yeah. I want you to – I want – I don't need – I want you to trust me here. And it doesn't happen to ha- have to happen right now. It can happen three weeks from now when you're back on the podcast because we're old friends. But like I want you to trust me in the sense that I feel like in this room that I've invited you into, most people just – They've never been to a black neighborhood. They've, they've never been to a black barbershop. They don't even know what a hair weave is. They have no idea what, uh, as far as like Trinidadian stuff is concerned, what the word horn means. They don't know what the word, they don't know what curry barbecue fundraisers are for steel bands. They don't understand. And it's not, it's not an active like avoidance of black culture and they hate. It's an ignorance. Mm-hmm. And, and then because of the tenor of society right now and the way people are talking – there's a fear of like, if I say the wrong thing, I'm going to get roasted or whatever. And so Mac, I, I, I kind of like, again, you, you do not need to be an ambassador for anyone other than yourself. But right. what, what maybe is other, other than this podcast, what is something for somebody who's never lived in a black neighborhood, maybe never met a black person ever? Um, 
what is something that what is a what what advice do you have? Um, what advice do you have? I, I, I don't have a good question here, Mecca. I'm sorry. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't prep these ahead of time. I just know a lot of my friends just don't know, and their viewpoints are based on biases of their own. Maybe they had a bad interaction with a black person, and now they wa- they watch one episode of Cops, and they're like, you know what? That's right. Like black people are this, and boom, they've made that connection, and that's it. How do right. you? How do you recommend folks untease that bias that they have? Well, it, it's all psychological, you know. Um, I, I and I, I a lot of times I do feel like I need to be ambassador because we need, I need we need to speak up and have an understanding so we can change the direction of, of, of history so history doesn't repeat itself. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I no, I don't need to be an ambassador, but I feel like I have to be because I, I don't want my grandchildren to go through what I've I've gone through. There needs to be an understanding. And I think um, it has to start with those people. They have to be open to learning. Because a lot of times they see, and, and a media plays a big part in this because they see what goes on in TV or what's more than in TV. They show you all the bad stuff. But they don't show you, they'll show you the, the, the ghetto girls with the hair weaves and the, you know, all the makeup and the butterfly lashes and all this. They ghetto and ratchet and the period, boo, all that. They show you all that, right? They don't show you the normal ones. Those of us that are just normal and just chill and just, you know, living our lives and we're very docile and and we don't we just want to live and we just want to be walk through this earth comfortably and we just want to we just want to raise our children and, and enjoy lives and not have to worry about you know things like getting pulled over, being afraid of getting pulled over. We just so that so it, it goes back to a willingness to want a want is psychological. You have to want when you see the media always portraying black people in a negative light, you automatically think that's how all black people are, but we're not. They only focus on the the bad. Mm -hmm. So people don't care to know. And that's what it goes back to that. You have to care to know you have to be in your mind, say, well, this can't be all that that they're about. Let me find out. And most people don't have that that mentality to do that. They just see what they see, and that's it. They don't care to know that you know those ghetto ratchet people are the exception and not the rule. So that they they don't care to find out because they think that is the rule. Well, I also like. I feel like there's a there's a lot of times that white people, um, or uh, again, I don't want to use the word white people. People outside of that community. We'll use words like ghetto and ratchet. And it's like those words, I'm sorry, those words mean something different to you than they do to me. And it's not like, uh, again, I don't, I don't know if I would put this in the same word as the same category as the N word. It's just like, no, 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 no. Like, it's fine. I'm not going to roast you for using the word ghetto, but I think you need to know the intent behind that word when someone like Mecca uses it versus when you use it because of your experience with cops or whatever it is you've seen on the news. And if we can't like if the news media shows us nothing but negative things about black people, maybe we should be asking the news media to teach us a little bit more about Juneteenth and the and Black Wall Street. You know, like, all right, let's just if you're going to show us about all these black people robbing convenience stores, let's just talk about Black Wall Street for at least five minutes. Like, let's just show you what it means to have black business owners burnt to death because they had yeah. a successful business. And this was not that long ago. Early 1900s, you know, like. 
It was, yeah, uh, Black Wall Street was, oh God, I can't remember the year. 19 something. I can't remember. I want to say 17 or 19, like somewhere in the like pre, pre-World pre War One. I, I want to say. No, it was, it was after. Was it was it? after, it was after 1920s. I can't recall right now. It, it wasn't that long ago. It was. Uh, Let me look it up, just because I'm. I don't want to say something. Um, June, uh, June, July fifth, two thousand seventeen, nineteen twenty one. Nineteen twenty one. I was close. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we were both correct. We were both close. You were closer. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was not. <laughs> yeah, I knew it was something like that. But I think I think you know to, to answer your question, it needs to be a willingness to learn. Um, just people just don't have that willingness to learn. They just want to see. They see. They they see and they just go with it. Um, it needs to be open-mindedness to understand that black people, because the, the media portrays us as these violent, aggressive people. And, and if we were what they say we are, there would be no white people here, honestly, because after what we've gone through with, you know, slavery and Jim Crow and all this stuff, if we were that violent, it wouldn't be. I've so never understood when it's, I, it's when not, I, it's, we, we're not, when I have conversations with my friends, or not when my friends, when, like people who are afraid of black people, I'm like, you're clearly, you've never, okay, stop for two seconds. Hold up a second. Oh, let's back up. Have you ever had bacon shark? Have you ever had roti? I, have you ever had, like, let's just, like, you clearly have never met or spoken with a black person before, let alone had the food or listen to the slang or listen to the music. Like, like, yeah, Okay. All right, we need to talk. And that's the feeling I have a yeah. lot when people say, like, oh, I'm afraid of black people, or why don't they just listen to the cops? I'm like, yeah. <sighs> and I hate when people say, why don't they just listen? They're listening to the, to the cops, still get us killed. Like, it don't, we still get killed. That The gentleman that got pulled over, uh, but. Philando Castile. Philando Castile. Yeah. He was, he's a licensed gun carrier. He's telling the cop, yes, I do have, I do have, and he's complying and he still got killed. Yeah, where's the NRA so on like, that? You know, that's the thing that... And the NRA was completely silent. Yeah. So even ob- obeying the law gets us killed. It's like, we, it's like, we can't, there's nothing we can do right. And so, you know, a lot of people, a lot of, like, I know people in my granddad's generation, that they feel like, they feel like white people don't have souls. It's like, how could you do this to people for so long mm-hmm. and let it happen and not and be okay with it. Cause you know, you see pictures, um, you know, I've seen pictures of black people hanging from the tree by a noose and then white people are by it, just smiling, posing for the camera. And I'm like, they're smiling with the dead body. They just feel like they'll castrate a man hanging from the tree and then pose for a photo smiling. And it's like, to me, it's like, why are they celebrating this? I don't know if you ever heard of gator bait. Mm-mm. All right. So they used to take little black babies and feed them to the gators. There's there's literally postcards of black babies calling. You can you can actually look it up. Black babies calling them gator bait. I'm gonna go throw up now, Mecca. If that's okay with you, like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like they, there's I, been some like yeah. terrible, terrible thing. You know, they they literally threw little black babies to to they called they were called gator bait. That happened. They had. Um, in Australia, because you know the Aboriginals are dark-skinned people, mm-hmm. they used to bury the babies up to their necks and have contests to see who can kick their heads off. This is real. This is I, you can look this up. I'm not making it up. This is actual history. They, I mean, it's, it's been so much things that have happened. Like, like, like I said, 
people in my grandfather's generation was like white people think they can't have souls they can't do this another human being and and have a soul you know so when people try to say that black people are so aggressive we don't have a history of doing these things this is we're just portrayed as negative and we're not because when you get to know us we're just chill like we're just cool we just want to live we just want to we just want to live our lives and not have to walk into the earth so it's just there needs to be an understanding there needs to be a willingness to learn an open-mindedness to say hey maybe this isn't maybe what i'm seeing isn't right let me find out so that's where we can start. And that's why I like this dialogue. So we can be up understanding. Well, I like this dialogue too, a lot, Mecca. And again, like I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of chatter online now of like, you know, we're done talking, stop talking, you know, get to action. And I, I've, I've bristled at it. And I, I, I don't know how I, me personally, I, I progress when I talk and learn about things. I progress when someone says, Hey, check this out without saying, if you don't check this out, you're a racist, you know, like, that that word the r word racism is that is a very specific tool and yeah. we as a society have to if we label everybody as racist then you're not going to be able to see the real ones and mecca i am here to tell you they exist i grew up around a handful of them i know right where they live and if we if we aren't careful with who it is that we call those words those people can hide and that is dangerous you know and and now that doesn't mean that that like there are, I, I don't know whether it means we come up with a different word for racism, like things that are unintended racism. Like we need a different word. I don't know what My it is. Yeah. Like something where we can sort of separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of like, yep, there's Nazis out there. Let's make sure we know where they are so that we can always have our eye on them. Um, but I, right. I, I just think that this, the way we talk about this stuff is super duper important. And I think that, um, you know, like I, I, I feel like I'm someone who has been in the black community for a long time. In, I mean, again, not every day, but I intersect with it way more than most of my white colleagues. And I didn't know about Black Wall Street until I watched, and Mecca, I'm going to admit something to you here, so please don't judge me, until I watched Watchmen. <laughs> until I saw the show uh, Watchmen. I had no idea. And then I read the book. I read the graphic novel over vacation last, last year, and I was like, oh, wow, this is fucking nuts like of course it's a graphic novel but it's based in 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 history right and yeah. that show watchmen for me like again i'm not advocating that that be like if you're questioning race you should watch watchmen but it does address a lot of the historical things that we're all talking about now and i that's where i learned about black wall street and i feel bad about that but it's true and I, it, whether or not I think we need to rewrite, yeah. we, we need to rewrite some history, some textbooks, um, you know, whatever it is. But uh, I don't know. Like, I don't have a question here, Mecca. I'm just saying, like, you mentioned Black Wall Street the other day. And I was like, damn it. I didn't know about that until a year ago. And I'm 40. <laughs> and I work in black communities. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> well, it's, it's because, you know, these are things that aren't taught in school. Mm -hmm. These things I had to learn on, on my own. I, I'm very intelligent person. I do a lot of research, a lot of studying. I don't talk about things that I don't know about. If I don't know, I'm going to say I don't know. Mm -hmm. So for me, I just, I'm a very inquisitive. I don't take anything for face value. I have to know. So a lot of what, and a lot of what I've learned comes from me doing research and, and try to find out on my own. And just, you know, people have to be more willing to find out on their own. Um, 
it's just it's a it's a it's sort of an ignorance. People just don't know and they don't care to know. Uh, and some and then and in other instances, they just don't know what they don't know. They're mm-hmm. just exposed to it. Yep. So it's just different, you know. It, it, it's different problems, and there's like no one way to tackle the problem. But there, but, but I think the key is that people have to be open-minded and willing to learn and find out. I'll tell you another experience um, I had in Georgia growing up. Um, I think I was in the fifth grade. And it doesn't snow in Georgia. But we got like a, well, it, it didn't snow in Georgia. It does like once a decade and everybody wrecks and their got, cars when they do. <laughs> yeah. So we got like an inch of snow and they shut down all of downtown Atlanta. Mm. We didn't have to go to school or anything. So I went outside to enjoy the snow. A little bit that we did get some outside and I wasn't supposed to be. And um, minding my business and these two little white boys walk up to me, start bothering me, called me a nigger. And I don't even know one of them. I don't know how how I got him on the ground. I was sitting on his chest and I was like pounding his face in. And he's just like, take turning red. <laughs> and the <laughs> other one took off running. And the neighbor came and pulled me off of him. But it was unprovoked. I was there minding my business. I was by myself. And they just see me and just decided to mess with me for no no apparent reason. And it's like, how do you make sense out of that? It's like, you're not bothering anybody. And then somebody just comes along just to bother, don't even, doesn't even know you. Just comes along just to bother you. It's like, how do you make sense out of that? Well, I... It, 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 the experiences that I've, I've gone through this growing up, you know, not, not to mention, because within the Black community, we have our own issues that we need to feel. We have colorism. I'm a dark-skinned lady. That's not considered desirable in the, you know, for, for the most part in the mm-hmm. African-American or the Black community. But that's a whole step. That's a whole nother thing that we need to figure out. But it's a branch on yeah. the same tree of otherism. I mean, it's the same sort yeah. of, it's the same so idea. Kind of, yeah, it goes back to, you know, the, the Willie Lynch systems and stuff and how they, the psychological work that they did to divide us. So that's a whole nother thing. But a lot, I, I dealt with a lot of um, mostly microaggressions, a lot of blatant racism going, especially in Georgia. You can drive down 75 and you'll see a big old Confederate flag. You know, um, so this is this, always been real in my life. And and who nobody needs to grow up like that. That's not, mm-hmm. you know, and people, and that's where a lot of, you, you do see those women, because, you know, there are bad people in every place, right? When you do see those bad black people or those aggressive, you know, whatever, there's a reason why they're that way. And I'm not excusing it, but they but everybody's quick to laugh at them, but not to understand what, what made them that way. Mm-hmm. The things that we grow up with, the, the things we deal with as we walk through life makes them that way or makes us the way we are. So when you see those people that are just that don't know how to act and just act crazy and do all kind of there's a reason for that. They need to, they don't they don't even understand it themselves. So there just has to and like be a general understanding and a general respect for each other, each other's culture, and each other's walks through life. That I think might it, it, how we can tackle this and get past it. Well, I uh, Mecca, I I um I don't want to keep you too much longer here. I know you're 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 a busy woman and you've got stuff to do, but I 
first off, I, I again, this is our first time chatting face to face like this. Um, there's no way anybody's. There's no way, first of all, that your story is going to be complete in an hour and seventeen minutes. Um, and there's no way anybody on my side of the equation who I feel want, needs to needs to and wants to learn about this stuff is going to learn everything they need to know in an hour and seventeen minutes. So. I want you to know that the door is always open. Um, this is a conversation, and I would love to, 40 years from now, um, be having you over to the house, and we're making dinner with each other and hanging out with Sheldon and Kendall and all everybody. Like, I'd love for us to get to that point. I am in no hurry. Like, I know that stuff takes time. Um, just know the door is always open. If you want to talk, if you want to come on and yell, you want to call me Whitey for an hour and a half, I don't care. Like, like I'm here. I get it. Um, and I know that your intentions are bigger picture, so... Um, just know the door's always open. Um, secondly, I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your story. As someone who has been through a tiny bit of therapy, I know how hard it is to say out loud. Uh, maybe the privilege I have is that I'm because I'm of my upbringing. My the the courage it took me to talk about my dad's death maybe was a little less courageous than you talking about your brother's death. Um, but we're on again. We're just different branches of the same tree, and I, I'm grateful for that. I know how hard that is. Um, I know how hard it was for me to talk about my dad. So I know I can imagine how hard it is for you. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. purely I didn't, for you and I, didn't, I really don't talk about it. I normally, I normally don't bring it up, you know, um, but I'm glad for this opportunity. Um, again, we didn't have a voice back then. Um, so now I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm glad, I'm glad that you are so willing to understand and to learn because I didn't, experience that and you know it, I've had people white people that I talk about these things I go through with and it's just it was just blown off most for the most part was just written off like oh but the, the fact that you actually care mm-hmm. that you give a damn and that you want to make a difference I appreciate that you know I really do and and I feel like these kind of conversations bring can bring understanding and bring some kind of a change you know because we why shouldn't we all we should all be able to drive our cars and pull, get pulled over and only have to worry about getting a point on a license. We should all have that, that peace. You're not worried about getting killed when you get pulled over. We should all have that. So I think one of the things we can do, like I said before, is a systematic change. We need that systematic change. But um, that's going to be some work, you know. But in the meantime, while we're working on that systematic change, at least we can get an understanding of each other. I, I know, think a and, lack and, of under, a lack of understanding is at the root of almost every problem we have in society, whether it be racism, misogyny. Like, like I said, it doesn't matter. I think it comes from a lack of understanding, a lack of education. Um, that there's a point at which this conversation then eventually turns to like, okay, time for us to shit or get off the pot here and do something about it. But but I think I think that point, sadly, if we want to have real change, might be slightly farther away than any of us want to admit. But what I'm telling you is that I'm willing to do the like I'm willing to till the soil with you over a long period of time in the hopes that we have these conversations way easier moving forward. I teach drums, Mecca. I'm try I try real hard. Like I would love to go in and reform the police tomorrow. I don't know how to. I'm try like I, I know how to play paradiddles on a steel drum. You know, like that's what I was trained to do. So um I you know, but I'm not abdicating myself of my responsibility of having a part in it. And what I'm asking you is like, I just need your help. I'm not asking you for to do anything that you, you can't do. And if you can't do it, tell me, but I'm in this with you. 
And if the success of our country, the success of our races together, the, we're the human race, the success of all of this relies on you and me, not on you and not on just me. And if right. that ever feels not that, then, then I think I'm going to look at you and be like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know what to tell you. So all of that is said, Mecca. Um, I really, really, really am grateful for your time. And I want to do this again. So um, please do not hesitate to be like, I'm free on this date. Let's do it because I'll do it. Um, before I let you go, is there any um, website or well, actually where can folks find out about you and your DJ stuff? Like if they want to know about what you do when no one's looking and you're not doing your other jobs, where can they find you? Um, my website is down right now. I'm revamping it, mm-hmm. but it's MeccaRoseTheDJ.com. Um, it'll be back up soon. Um, Get it up soon, me. Mecca, because I'm going to tell people about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm working on that. Um, also, I'm on Instagram uh, under DJ M-E-K-K-A underscore R-O-S-E. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, you know, I put all kinds of, I'm, I have a very silly sense of humor. So I got all kinds of stuff on my Instagram. You, you might see something very poetic and you might see something very stupid, like something funny, something sexual, something a flyer. You might, it's all my, my Instagram is all over. It's just for entertainment purposes. So my Instagram is all over the place. So that's, that's the best way to find me. Um, my music is on SoundCloud. I'm starting to get back into techno because I started out as a techno DJ. So I got like an EDM mix on there. So I got a little, a little bit of something for everybody, but I mean, the, the best way to follow me is is on the IG because I'm always posting stupid stuff on there, like just to the last whatever. So that's the best way to follow me. But soon, 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 I have the, the website back up and it's MeccaRoseDJ.com. And then, and also on Facebook, Mecca Rose Deselectress uh, is your full sort of Facebook handle. Is that correct? Yeah. I don't have much room left on my, my Facebook. For, for, <laughs> like for, I have like 10 more people. Oh, <laughs> All right. Well, there's 10 slots open, folks. Get in, get them while they're hot, you know, (laughs) make Mecca unfriend some folks so you can get in there. Facebook, but you know, Instagram is the best because I don't have to keep deleting people on there. But um, yeah, I think that's pretty much. And um, I have a a hair and skincare line. Um, That website is down too because I'm getting more inventory back in. Mm -hmm. But I make organic um, hair and skincare products, make oils, body washes, and stuff like that. Everything is plant-based. I've been doing it for a long time. What's the it's, name uh, of it? Mahogany, MahoganyRose.com. Well, Mahogany Rose is the brand. Mm-hmm. It's Mahogany-Rose.com. So okay. right right now, my websites are being revamped. I'm trying to make them more professional, more appeasing for the eye. Mm-hmm. So they're down at the moment. Okay. And I'm well, but, it'll, um, it'll be a few yeah. days before I get this out. So you have a couple days, Mecca, to get those all live. Okay. And- <laughs> All right, good, good, good. Get, get them ready to go. Well, Mecca, I, I am very grateful for your time. And and again, um, just please know the door is always open. Um, I'm locked inside my house till January, so you know where to find me. Um, uh, I would love to talk more with you about this stuff. I'm grateful for your time. And please stay safe and be, and be healthy. Um, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon, okay? I'm grateful for your time as well. Thank you again for inviting me on this platform. I really do appreciate it. You're quite welcome. We'll talk to you soon. Take it easy. You too. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquidrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, L-I-Q-U-I-D-R-U-M.com. Percussion, education, merch, hilarity. You won't regret it. Uh, and finally, DunleavyPans.com. I play and teach on Kyle's drums. Uh, you, won't rec- you won't regret looking him up.
D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y-Pants.com. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, Be well, take care, and be kind. See ya.